0: All right, so we welcome you to another episode of Learning Stories. This is a show where we uh, profile a diverse set of learners from the 21st century. In each episode of this show, uh, we interview a guest who has a unique story to share about how they acquired uh, a set of skills and knowledge in a creative and innovative manner. In the process, we hope to uncover a new definition of learning as uh, conceptualized, narrated, and imagined by the guest in our show for that day. Um, Today's guest, Arunita Praharaj, um, is a communication specialist based in Bahrain uh, with experience in the fields of journalism, advertising, and PR. Um, In addition to this, more informally, she refers to herself as uh, Kisago of South Asian Stories. I may have said that wrong, Aru, so you can correct no, me. that's
1: perfect. <laughs> that's perfect, yeah.
0: So She refers to herself yeah. as the Kisago of South Asian Stories, which is what she's currently using her Instagram account and blog for. I will link these sites in the show notes, and uh, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of uh, uh, her, I mean, Arunita's background and the work she does, but I am so excited for this interview because I've been a fan of your work for a really long time now. And one of the things that I noticed in your work is this sense of nostalgia, Arunita, in terms of the memories you have of the people you were close to growing up, your childhood um, in Bahrain and and wherever you've been, you've been all over the world now. So, you know, just to get this show started, uh, Arunita, What are your memories of the Arunita growing up um, in Bahrain? And what were your some of your early influences there?
1: (laughs) It's funny you say that, Abhishek, because one of my strongest suits in life has always been my memory. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very strange, but I remember things very early on in life, in the sense like I can look back and see things very clearly. Uh, To a point where I remember what people were wearing, how they looked, what they said when they, you know, and when they were saying that particular thing, what they looked like. Uh, So I think that is something I really depend on my memory, even when I'm uh, building stories or writing something. um, I try not to exaggerate as much as possible because people catch on to that. And so in order to do that, I depend on my memory a lot. So growing up in Bahrain, uh, especially because I moved uh, from India, much like yourself, and uh, a lot of my initial years was spent missing my grandparents because I was very close to both my sets of grandparents. And uh, so when I moved here, I remember being very nostalgic, like you pointed out. Uh, I probably didn't know that I was nostalgic at that point because I was very young. Um, but I was uh, definitely like missing them and I was homesick in a very strange way. But gradually I found my own. And then you you tend to, you know, like you make friends and then uh, your parents make friends and you discover these new people and new interests so uh, like all of that then changes and then you stop missing the people of course they're there in some part of your mind which now probably reflects in what i do and what i write about um but then it started changing the narrative started changing and i uh, was obsessed with vimto growing up uh <laughs> because you know like drinking vimto in the gulf is like the thing um so every, everything to do with Bahrain, like shawarmas, the falafels, you know, like all of that. So it started changing. The narrative started changing and it started to be about like going to the beach. Um, so those those are like primarily what my memories are all about. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but, but I think it's about a lot of things since my mind uh, flickers a lot like a bulb. So it goes here and there.
0: No, that's, that's great. I think that's one of the things that we try and think about in this show is that uh, so many times our life does not have a straight single path, right? And even the way we go around doing things, they're often related to such unconnected things growing up. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I I was reading one of the recent uh, series of posts that you put up on your Instagram account, uh, which was Pechan, and uh, you built it off uh, Your mom's story, you know, and how she moved to Bahrain um, as an immigrant. And and that was something that really caught my eye because often we think about our own stories, but then there were people that are also responsible for our stories and those are our parents. So um, what was, I mean, uh, I I know auntie and uncle were always supportive, but uh, growing up, do you feel like you were influenced by uh, some of the habits your parents had in terms of reading and, and were they always pushing you to try other things? And I know reading is one of your, you know, uh, I mean, you really enjoy reading and I've been following your blog and some of your posts. So maybe tell us a little bit about how that love for books developed and maybe the influence of your parents, you know, early on growing up. Uh-
1: Funnily enough, neither of my parents read. Uh, It it is not like, it's not something that I got from my immediate family. Mm. Uh, My mom used to read a lot of Hindi books. That's where I got my passion for Hindi from. uh, Hindi and Urdu especially. Uh, And I think she influenced me a lot in that sense that I was very interested in reading about uh, like the Indian authors such as Mahadevi Varma and all of those like aside from coursework, Uh, But Uh, when it comes to reading I think my maternal grandfather had a huge role to play in that Uh, he loves reading and I think I caught it from him he had like huge uh, like a collection of books and he would recommend books to me and as I kept growing up he would recommend age-appropriate books and novels to read and uh, I think it just, it just caught on, you know, and I think, of course, apart from that, when we were in school, I used to have this teacher called Shirley Mam, she was my English teacher. And um, she saw that I had, uh, you know, like an affinity towards writing. Uh, but of course, it wasn't, I'm, it's, it's one of those skills that, you know, it develops over time. And, and you can tell when someone is trying too hard, but you know that there's something there, like there's a spark. So she noticed that spark. And she told me that something you must do in order to get better is is to read. Because the more you read, the better writer you'll become because you will see how people are using words. And the use of words, like noticing that and how they are using phrases, what kind of examples they draw from, you know, what kind of parallels they're drawing from life will really influence you and you will become a better writer in in that process. I don't think I understood that at that point. I just just read books because I liked reading books. And uh, I wasn't a very serious reader even because I used to finish reading books very fast. But then... Something happened when I went to university and I had to read, especially during my master's, which was in uh, political journalism. So all of my essays um, really required me to read like external reading aside from your coursework and your PowerPoint presentations. So we used to go to the library and we'd sit and just open books and read. And that's when I started making notes alongside uh, reading. Mm -hmm. And I made reading into a huge task, uh, because I would make notes. And I would, you know, I would actually, if I read something, and it stuck with me, I would just close the book and think about it for the whole day. And sometimes that would inspire like little, like short write ups on something completely unaligned but that particular thing triggered me into, you know, writing about something else. So that's when I really took it up. And like, I read books seriously. I'm a very serious reader. I don't read in swathes. I read um, very slowly, like for months, I keep reading the same book. Uh, And it's really, I'm I'm in that sense, I'm a poor reader. But When I read something, I know everything about that book and I truly try to understand why that author has written it and what they were thinking and what I've drawn from this. And um, so for me, reading is like almost like meditation at this point, when I read something, I give all my attention to it. And I never like ditch books, even if I don't like them, I try my best to finish the book. because i know each author is trying to say something and i don't think you'll ever meet a bad book in your life because every book will teach you something and it'll leave you with something so i think it was a lot of things but definitely it started with my maternal grandfather who really pushed me towards reading and then it grew you know into a very serious habit
0: i um, mean yeah It's, it's, it's so important, right, like a couple of things come out to me when you say those things, because having someone to guide you at that point, especially with the kinds of books you read, is so important, because you bring a lot of yourself to the books you read. And, you know, when, when we're younger, we think we need, we think we need to read, you know, great literature, we need to read books from all over the world, but it's so important to understand The things that you are particularly interested in, and maybe build off those little interests. Like a funny story I have to share about you, I have to share with you is I had this teacher that realized I was really passionate about sports. Mm -hmm. I was not much of a reader, and it's weird we say that because we read in different ways, in different forms, consume media as well, right? But she realized I was interested in sports and you know she gave me a book about a sport I was interested in and for some reason I felt for the first time this was a world I could be part of you know and this was a world Mm -hmm. that that accepted me Mm -hmm. with my quirks and my interests and I just kept reading books about sports and then I moved on to a related theme so you know, I was I was really able to relate to what you said and, and and that's that's how reading became a habit right you can read about things mm-hmm. that you are interested in and then move on to other things but coming back to uh, your story you know I uh, I read an article on your blog uh, that said do what you want but keep everyone happy and just to backtrack a little you know as um, as as, as Children that grow up, you know, in, in an NRI, like a non-resident Indian culture, or South Asian, you know, sometimes there's an assumption that everything's really comfortable and everything's in place, and mm-hmm. you know, you've got everything figured out. But most of our parents are professionals, you know, they have a lot of aspirations and dreams for us, and and it often transfers onto you know um, our subculture growing up in school. Like you have to do uh, like certain professions are placed on a pedestal. And it's very confusing for a young person because you feel like the ideal objective is to possibly finish those parameters, you know, get into a good school, get into a good university, and then make independent, well-thought-through decisions. And I know that, um, I'm just curious about that that journey for you, you know, like, what did you study um, in high school? And and what did you decide to study in university and then how did that shift and evolve um, over time and uh, were there any influences that that led to that decision or do you feel like it came more from you you know and I'm just curious about that journey for you.
1: I'll be completely honest here because I'm glad you brought this up this is a huge struggle for uh, South Asian kids in general you know no matter where they are around the world academics are usually like 90% of the time the most important thing according to their parents. Um, So like in initially like everyone else I was very influenced by uh, my parents and what my what my parents had to say about my career. I studied commerce in school, I didn't want to do it, honestly, like, I think I would, it would have been a better, uh, sorry, fit for arts. Uh, But I chose to study commerce, because I was told that had much better quote unquote, scope. And uh, I enjoyed it, I was good at it. But it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue further, you know. Uh, But As, uh, you know, pressures would have it, uh, I studied accounting and finance. My father is a chartered accountant and uh, he thought it would make uh, for a good profession for me because I was doing well in commerce. So I went um, to the UK and I studied accounting and finance Uh, and I'll be completely honest, while my grades were fine, I was absolutely miserable because the concept of people studying something because their parents told them became very foreign in the UK. Mm -hmm. Everyone around me was doing it because they were really passionate about it. So when they started, when we'd have seminars, or we taught, we talk about, you know, what we're doing and what we're studying, um, I would feel really left out because people were you know, genuinely thinking of this as a career, they were very serious about this. And then they're, they're like, they're, I was in the corner, like just doing it because I mean, that's what my dad said. And this is, I thought this would be great. Um, so towards the end of my degree, I, I think in the middle, I also, um, in my third year, I went and uh, I had two sets of internships. So one was in a journalistic field in Bahrain and the other was with uh, PWC. So when I was working, I just, I mean, even when I finished those internships, although internships are probably like 2% of what you're going to experience in the real, you know, sort of uh, professional world, I, I just knew that this is not the career for me. I can't be uh, someone who sits in an, at a nine-to-five job, even if auditing involves going to different offices, I just can't do this, this number crunching is exhausting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I sort of knew, even though I didn't tell anybody at that point, because I knew that would cause a lot of panic, obviously, because my parents had invested a good amount of money and effort into me studying accounting and finance. So I just knew it in my heart that this is not what I would uh, continue with. So When I finished my degree, I'd already started applying to um, journalism programs for masters. Uh, And I broke it to my parents. And I have to be honest, it was not taken very well because it was a shock and nobody understood why I was doing what I was doing. I did try to explain how miserable I was, but it wasn't like, you know, they they didn't get it because... And that's a that's something about our uh, culture as well. We want our kids to have um, good jobs. We don't think about it as a career, as something they live and breathe. You know, mm. um, so oftentimes, not just my parents, but like my immediate circle of friends told me that. Well, you know, it's just something you do during the day. Like it doesn't matter. This is gonna pay you well. Why are you? You can write on the side, and that is definitely not something that was calling out to me. And I knew I would. I would probably be paid really well. I would probably be settled in a really nice place, but I would be utterly miserable. I just knew it. I knew it in my gut. And despite everything, I just waited uh, for my results to come in from the journalism schools. And I made it to the top, like the, the number one university for journalism at that point, which was University of Sheffield. When that came through, there was like, some bit of confidence and like my uh, parents eased into it. And then I started studying journalism. I like, you know, worked uh, in the UK as well for a bit. And it was, I knew that this was my calling. Like I I don't regret it uh, one bit. So whilst like I was influenced by my parents and everybody around me at first, eventually I, I chose what I wanted to do because I knew I had to be happy doing, you know, whatever I was doing. So, yeah. And uh,
0: I mean, there's, uh, because I, that decision of moving between professions mm-hmm. so early in your life, uh, Arneet, I think that's not a very easy decision to make, especially when you think about, um, I mean, as as someone that's very young and that's ambitious and that has, you know, we often Tend to look at the people immediately next to us, and and we don't want to do it, but we make comparisons, and and mm-hmm. I think the the indicator we look at is how big or how comfortable or how much money they're making, rather than mm-hmm. if it's aligned to who they truly are, right? And mm-hmm. and you can be successful in so many different ways, right? You don't have to be successful, and and that is something that. But I I see coming through in your journey, right, this ability to constantly experiment and be okay with taking experiments or, like, taking a particular path, but then if it doesn't seem to work out, you know, making that shift. But I feel like in your journey, Arnitha, I know uh, you were at Newcastle for your first Mm -hmm. degree, which is in North Mm -hmm. England, and then Sheffield Mm -hmm. is closer to Manchester, which is a little Mm -hmm. further down south, but... Mm. What was it like, because you grew up in Bahrain, which is primarily Middle Eastern, and then, you know, your roots are in Orissa in India, which is in the mm. eastern part of India, but you probably have friends and family from all over, and then you go and you're uprooted into a completely different culture in uh, in England, which also has its various sub-communities. I know the north is very different from the south and the east and the west. So, I mean, wh- what was it like being a third culture, you know, uh, kid or a student in these cultures, I mean, in these different environments. And do you feel like that was constantly um, playing on your mind as you went about thinking about, you know, doing all these different things?
1: Yes, of of course, definitely, because, I think when I grew up here, it wasn't that uh, difficult, as you would know, because we're still closer. Whilst it's a completely different culture, it's also very, um, people are very, very accommodating. So you, you, were, you never feel like you're uh, far away from your own country. Also, the large number of Indians and, and again, the tolerance and the, the humility in general, um, but then, when you move to say somewhere like England, it's it's far off, and uh, you know there's there's a huge uh, culture shock. To sort of deal with when you yeah. first move. Um, for instance, like uh, it's a simple things such as like, you know, drinking is a very normal thing in those cultures, whereas both Bahini and Indian cultures uh, don't exactly like embrace drinking in the way that the English do. So uh, you know, initially, like, firstly when you go in, it's not just you who are like trying to settle in a different environment, it's also the other people trying to. Uh, understand you and, and, you know, figure you out as well, because they have their own sort of settling to do. So uh, I remember being a very judgmental 17 year old, because I went with certain preconceived notions about the world. And like, you know, you you believe in certain things. And like, when you see people doing something differently, you you tend to judge them. So like, over time, though, it changed, the judgment changed. And I'm very happy for that, because I'm a much better person now. Uh, But I think the biggest struggle was initially, and this is funny, but the accent. Mm. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, like you, I would be afraid to speak, because I didn't want to pronounce something the wrong way. Or I didn't want to be made fun of, or, you know, whatever it was, because A lot of my very close friends who were settled in the UK or who who were like British, uh, British Indians, basically, they too, like, didn't realize what they were doing when they were making fun of some of us. And there were a bunch of us who went from India or from Bahrain and had our own set set of accents. And, you know, they would make these fleeting jokes, which they obviously they didn't mean to offend us. You know, deep down, it was just a joke, but it had such a huge impact and and you probably know like I had like a background in public speaking that is what I did all throughout my high school years and um, I, I enjoyed it it was something I was good at but then when I moved all of a sudden I was scared to speak I was really really scared to put out my opinion simply because I didn't know Uh, if people would accept the way I talked, or uh, what I was pronouncing was correct or incorrect, or, you know, these little uh, things that sort of get to you. And uh, I think a funny instance is that apparently, like, nobody taught us how to pronounce the vowels correctly. I don't know if you (laughs) had the same experience, but apparently, we don't know how the difference between uh, ver and were as in a V and a W. So that was something that constantly happened to happened to me, and people would correct me all the time. And when you get corrected, it's okay. Like I, I was open to learning, but you, you're some deep down, you sort of die a little bit every time you're corrected. So the accent was a huge, huge problem, and. I, in in when i look back you know and and i was at the, and during my first or second year i was very adamant i'm like i'm not going to change my accent i might i can change my pronunciation mm-hmm. but i won't be changing my accent for this i'm sorry it's it's unnecessary people have understood me perfectly well in the past so i'm not going to be changing how i talk yeah. um but then my career happened, which was in journalism and, and a lot of it, it was hardcore journalism where you call up people and you ask for stories. Um, majority of the times, people would just cut the call on me. It would be it, w- it was a newsroom wherein people would call to give a story, to talk about something. And when they would transfer the line to me and I would start talking, they would cut the call. Wow. So um, that's when i like i was truly hit by it in my in my third/fourth year in in the united kingdom i realized that i might have to learn the accent and i was i was told that in order to make them more comfortable and for them to give you their story you need to have a little bit of an accent sure so they feel comfortable. And mm-hmm. so I actually took up uh, elocution classes of sorts, which most of my uh, you know, closest friends don't know about. Mm-hmm. But I acquired the British accent. I actually learned it, how to pronounce things the British way. And that, you know, like it was a huge hit to my or an identity because why do I need to have an accent for people mm-hmm. to understand me. But that's just the reality of things. And believe it or not, it made things easier um, in in the newsroom. So I think accent and like, just putting myself out there was one of the biggest struggles, like, and I I didn't, and I think it came as a shock, because I didn't think that would be one of my struggles. Uh, I was overconfident in the way I carried myself or spoke. So it was a blow. Um, but you live and learn and everything is an experience, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I, I completely relate to that because I'm, I'm currently in Canada and you know, I went to school to be an English teacher and um, very often I catch myself uh, saying certain things and it's not said in a particular way here. And, uh, and then I realized that there is an unconscious hierarchy in terms of North American and British English being placed on a pedestal and that goes back to our colonial legacy in terms of how the global system is structured, right? But then if you think about it, a lot of us grew up speaking English as one of our main languages, right? And we just spoke it in a different way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is in any way different from, but then I, I understand where you're coming from when you say that um, as people that live in different cultures, we constantly have to code switch, right, between Definitely. you know one identity yeah. and another identity, yeah. and and it comes back to that point about each of us carrying multitudes within us, right? We're not only um, South Asian, but we're also an immigrant. Uh, we're also we also have a particular gender, and this gender will be very different from our sexual orientation. And then we choose a particular profession, and you know, when I was thinking about the series that you started, uh, you know, I was looking at some of the recent posts and it was fascinating to see how people would talk about different aspects of their identity in the um, in the Instagram series. And I'm going to link all of this in the notes and I highly recommend you go see this series. It's uh, Pechan and I'm going to put that down. But sorry, you know, whenever you tell me something, I'm always going off on a tangent. But but I know you were very interested in extracurricular activities growing up. And again, you know, I'm trying to, like one of the things we try and do with this show, Aru, is to create a, a visual archive of the individual at a particular point in their lives, you know? And then you come back and look at this and see, this, is, this was me in some way, at some point of time, obviously we can't be accurate, but in school, I remember you as someone and were not in the same school, but we were, you know, we had common friends. Mm-hmm. But I know mm-hmm. you were the head girl at NMS and then um, at Newcastle, you were involved in a lot of uh, cultural activities. Uh, and it was probably the same at Sheffield. I'm, I'm curious if you were able to continue doing that at university and, and uh, what was the influence of some of those things? Also, um, as an international student in that context, what are some of the other things that you would do in those cities like Newcastle and Sheffield because I know they're pretty happening. And I mean, I'm, I'm curious about your life as an international student there too. Uh,
1: so I think I was very um, c- culturally, like I think culture was a huge uh, factor. Like from, from my childhood, I was very uh, attracted to it. It's it's funny how you, you sort of cling to your roots even more when you live outside uh, of, of the country of origin. So culture, I was always like clinging to, that's something I did in school. And then when I moved on to university, I thought I would put an end to it, and I would focus on my career. But then as, as things would happen, you know, I just gradually, I, you know, there were, there were societies, there was the Hindu and Sikh society, there were the Seesaw. there was the Seesaw, and like there was so much going on. And obviously, like, I wanted to be a part of it. And I did go ahead and I did that. So we used to organize a lot of um, spiritual, religious, and even like fun uh, Desi events. Um that, that was something I really enjoyed as an international student. Uh, and I think that that sort of keeps you uh, grounded and keeps you sane when you have so much going on. And there are so many things changing around you, you know, that you still have a bunch of Desi friends mm-hmm. that you can, uh, you can talk to or like go back to when things are falling apart. So um, apart from that, to be honest, I was a very boring uh, international student, um, so I don't think I can give much in sport to anybody out there. But uh, something I really enjoyed uh, doing, and I and I found my love for it there was, uh, I definitely like found out that I really like tea. <laughs> And because England is famous for tea, my friends and I would like discover a new tea house or a new tea parlor uh, every other week. <laughs> and although we were on a stringent budget, we'd somehow make up for that. And we'd be like, we're going to check this out. We're going to check that out. By the end of it, I could tell the different teas by just like smelling them. Wow. And I'm very, I'm very very proud of that. That's something I acquired in, uh, in England. So I think what what really happened, you know, like, uh, why I recommend that you, uh, you know, travel somewhere and like go live somewhere for a year, if you can, is because you mingle with that culture, and you realize um, that your views of the world are so, they're this tiny drop in the ocean, there's so much uh, to explore. Uh, I think just that You know, that aspect of it. So, for instance, I was uh, part of this uh, group called Isaac and which which exists all over the world. And that in itself was like an eye opener because uh, you you mingle with so many people with different cultures. And uh, I used to do this thing, which now people make memes about, which is like, where are you from? I would ask people all the time. And when they would tell me, I'm from Malaysia, but they looked, you know, Indian to me. So I'd be like, yeah, but where are you originally from? Mm -hmm. Because I realized why I was doing that. And why I thought it was fine is because living in Bahrain, we don't, we still call ourselves Indian. And that's a lot to do with the citizenship and yada, yada, yada. But that's not the case for like so many others who live in other countries. So I think uh, just that, awareness in general just by being in a new place when you acquire that and you don't even know when you're acquiring it it's Mm. not I can't I can't really call it by one name but uh, as an international student that is your greatest gift like Mm. the unlearning and like you know and and like rediscovering yourself by just interacting by different people and you can do that um, by like there are different means you can do that some choose to do it by like joining reading clubs and drinking tea unfortunately I fall within that category and then the the others do it by you know like drinking and partying and whatever it is everything is an exchange so um, whatever floats your boat uh, I think Yeah. yeah
0: Yeah, that's, you know, it's so funny, you mentioned tea, and I was just gonna take a sip of my tea, and I was like, that is perfect timing, you know, and, and that's, that's so true, Ar, you know, because growing up, like, one of my uh, fond memories growing up is that, like, even though the both of us are from India, right, I'm from Karnataka, which is a state in the southern part, and mm. am I right when I say you're from Orissa, or Ar, like, or are you yes. from Orissa, okay, I'm from and, yes. and is it, is it still Orissa, or is it changed to another name now
1: it's orissa but okay. yeah i think the spelling has changed but it's still orissa yeah
0: got it got yeah it. and mm. you know sometimes uh, like one of i mean i i when i was in india i really enjoyed going around but being indian sometimes i'd go to another state and find myself being in a culture that's very different you know and it was mm. such an odd experience because i was indian i'm supposed to feel at home here mm. and my parents grew up i mean in bombay which is again Mm -hmm. a completely different culture. And I was having this conversation with my dad the other day and I'm like, and you probably have something similar. My dad could speak like six or seven different languages like Marathi, Hindi, and then Urdu is related or Telugu, Tamil. So in a lot of ways, I was coming to terms with this idea of being Indian and in a foreign context like Bahrain, or in the UK, I think we really hold on to our culture a lot more, you know, whether mm. it's Bollywood or cricket or, you know, yeah. these things become so much more important. But I remember all the cultural events that we were all so excited about, you know, like like Dandia or some of the other stuff or like the Onam feast. So it's just fascinating to see how we hold on to our culture a lot more in these foreign contexts.
1: Absolutely. And mm.
0: and. Yeah, you know, and, you know, just coming, bringing it back to your experience in the newsroom after your degree. And I know that this was one of the most prestigious, like, uh, journalism training programs in the U.K. And I'm, I'm curious, what was it like to, uh, you know, be in that newsroom? But even before you were in that newsroom, Arnita, you know, you uh, took up a lot of internships and, um, and I think this is something that is underestimated in terms of it being a good learning opportunity when you are trying to figure out your paths, right? So, um, when you were doing your uh, accounting degree, what made you take up the the journalism internship in Bahrain, and what did that teach you? And then how did how did you uh, feed that curiosity to eventually lead to you know that particular degree, and you know maybe. Like, you know, I know my questions go into like, like these <laughs> large open yeah. abstract ideas, you know, but what I, I really want to know is um, how did your curiosity for journalism develop and how did these experience, professional experiences feed it?
1: So um, I think I was always into writing growing up. uh, And uh, at first, I wanted to uh, go into civil services because I thought that was a good fit for my skill set. But then I I realized that uh, that is probably not something I want to do at that point of time. For some reason, I can't remember exactly why I I thought that wasn't the fit for me at that point of time. But I knew writing like it was it was always even when I was studying accounting, I constantly wrote, I used to write just for myself, it wasn't getting published anywhere. But everything was a little story. And you know, like I used to cook stories in my head and write and I knew I wanted something that would that would sort of involve me in this beautiful thing of writing. So, uh, when you think of writing, you think of uh, journalism. It's sort of an an, an obvious sort of uh, career path. Although now I know that's not the only thing which you know I, which we may cover later on. Um, but uh, so so I just knew that I had to do journalism. And then when I was uh, studying accounting, why I took up that journalism internship was simply to understand: is this really what I want to do? Or am I just lost and still discovering what I like and what I don't like? Or should I stick to accounting? Mm-hmm. But the fact that I did both sim- uh, one after the other, not simultaneously, I, it was an eye opener. And I highly recommend this. If uh, you are between two career paths, you must intern in both of them. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, whilst internships are really not uh, the truest reflection of what's to come, they still give you a great foundation uh, to judge uh, from. Because sometimes you just don't like being in one space from nine to five. That's yeah. it. Yeah, you just you're not one of those people. You can't sit in one space. Yep. And if you can't do that, you can't be an accountant, unfortunately. Yep. You just can't. It is uh, one of those desk jobs. Yep. Not to put down accountants in any way, uh, their job is equally important, and I actually really admire accountants, which is why I studied it. But, um, but I knew that that was not the job for me. I needed, and another thing, I knew that I could not work in a serious environment, Mm. as serious as I seem. (laughs) And I, and I, and I, you know, like people often tell me that they find me intimidating, but I can't. I I knew that I needed a free space where people would sort of, you know, throw ideas, discuss, everything was a brainstorming session, people were more open, not too corporate, you know, it had to be a little loose. So these simple things sort of help you realize what you like, and what will truly make you happy. And I know some people might be like, that doesn't matter, it's just a job. But if you are looking to build a career, these things matter. They really do. Yeah. so that internship just like it just made me establish the fact that this was not the job for me like it was actually the turning point uh in my career and I and that's what uh, that's a good decision I made by by doing both because then I understood that this was not the career for me um and then gradually moving on I also uh, wrote in Sheffield I studied journalism so I made it all about writing and yeah. uh, in but before that in Newcastle as well wherever I was a part of these societies or whatever I always took up the jobs the writing jobs mm. so whether whether it was a social media post or a press release I would be happy to do it and that sort of told me that this is this makes me happy like after I finish this I'm happy it comes easily to me yeah which sort of like it was guiding me you know all the little things you do are like guiding you to that like purpose uh, you know in in life and then Sheffield I joined the the Sheffield Press and um, which was a part of the university so we used to go and review movies Uh, we used to do a lot of fun stuff and I think um, that just set me off and it sort of again, like I discovered my niche. Gradually, I realized that I like political journalism, because that is what I was studying. I really enjoy politics, world politics in general. But what I truly love is human stories. Mm. So even when I would write a very political piece, it would be from the perspective of this one person uh, that I've seen, because it had to be in my head, it just had to be engaging. And how do you do that? If you talk about a person, yeah. it becomes much more engaging than you know just talking about one like set of political agendas or political leaders for that matter. Yeah. So I think those little activities you know those those internships even joining societies or doing relevant extracurriculars will always help you you might not realize it but everything is uh, is sort of a teaching moment Uh, even even if you're not truly like getting that vibe at that moment but when you look back you will realize that everything sort of led to who you are today and what you're doing so yeah
0: yeah and you know I remember you telling me we were just chatting before this and you know you told me about an article you wrote that uh, mm. was related to AIDS awareness
1: was it AIDS it was diabetes diabetes yeah. awareness I'm yes. so sorry and
0: and I'm, I'm and I feel like you know oh, was mm. that like sort of a moment uh, like a, like a juncture that made you realize politics and journalism can come together in this unique way to actually create impact
1: that- Definitely. I looking back, that was one of my favorite articles that I did because it it helped raise funds. It had it had a purpose, and they were they were it was uh, these siblings uh, who had lost their father, unfortunately, uh, to uh, diabetes. And oftentimes, um, we don't realize how uh, big of an issue diabetes really is. It can it's it's fatal. It can kill you. And we take it very lightly because, you know, we make jokes about it and memes about it. You don't see memes about like AIDS. You you would never see memes about AIDS because people take it seriously. People don't take diabetes seriously, but a lot of people actually die from just being diabetic and not taking care of themselves and not realizing uh, where their health is at. So um, that article, too, was written from the perspective of those uh, siblings, uh, it was, it spoke about how their dad uh, was, you know, such a wonderful person, and they didn't even know what was going on uh, with him, because he never told anybody all the issues that he was going through. Uh, eventually, when they found out, they found, they found out that he was going through this, uh, this condition wherein it had worsened to a point that it was fatal. So, um I think it was a very engaging story. It also got a lot of hits on our website and people read it and reread it and shared it. So it helped the cause. And that's also like, that was my like, like sort of like the universe telling me that this is what you should do. even when you talk about a cause or whatever it is that you're taking up, it must have a human angle and it must, it, must, it must be a story, even if it's a journalistic piece of writing. And I used to get told off a lot in my journalism program, which was like my accreditation program called the NCTJ. Uh, which is where you get accredited in England and Wales to become a journalist and I would get told off a lot for my creative writing Mm -hmm. so they'd be like why are you acting as if you're on a creative writing program but uh, and at that point it used to hurt me Mm -hmm. but uh, you know I I realized very quickly in in like two to three months that I'm like yes I am a creative writer I'm Mm -hmm. I don't I cannot Write dry pieces. Mm. I cannot uh, depend on facts, and there are some authors or writers who do that beautifully. They will they present facts and simply facts, and you would still read it because it has such a great flow. But for me, it has to have a human angle. It needs to sure. tell a story. So um, it was, you know, like not only did I find out that I like journalism and I like writing, I also found my niche in it. it. So really, like, every day, you're sort of discovering uh, yourself. And uh, I think the biggest takeaway from that is to just say yes more, mm. to do the things that you think will add to your career, you you must say yes to them. Mm. Uh, because even if you don't think you'll be good at them, you'll know, you know, like little details about yourself, which will help you discover, uh, you know, the bigger picture.
0: Yeah. So yeah. 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 And thats I mean, you put it so beautifully, how you, you know, and you know one of the things I'm working on here is just like a part time summer job. We are looking at the uh, civil war in El Salvador, which was which went on for 12 years from 1980 to 1992. And we're trying to look at how the Globe and Mail and the New York Times covered the war. And uh, I, I realized that these news media outlets were possibly the only way for people to record what happened in that uh, particular political situation. And that's when I realized how important journalism actually is to keep a record that is uh, that presents all perspectives. But I also understand the struggle of because, you know, and because I, I studied literature, one of the things I took like one of my minors was related to journalism. And I know they tell you to focus on the objective five Ws and make sure all of that comes out in the first paragraph and then, but for me, the stories that always stand out are the ones that talk about how it affects a particular uh, individual in this context, because that individual's experience becomes um, sort of a synecdoche, you know, to what the larger situation is, you know, that, that smaller individual experience tells us a little bit about What the macro situation.
1: Exactly. And
0: and that's where I feel human stories are so important, right? By telling a a human story, you can let the reader make those inferences about what the larger context is, right? And, you know, this is where I want to segue into this, this another transition you made. It's amazing how you have so many powerful, beautiful transitions, but you started working as a brand manager at uni sono and uh, you also you know started uh, actively writing uh, on your instagram account and your blog and and you know what i what i slowly am coming to is this passion for telling stories no matter the medium and uh, you know whether it's social media or a more professional setting you know maybe just tell us a little bit about some of the projects you took up in the last two or three years like you can tell us about Sham uh, shamsaha am i am i saying that right yep. So okay. the, that was one of the professional projects that you got to work on where you saw that alignment happening but also mm. about your amazing amazing instagram account i mean i just love how you bring so much of yourself to it but also and honestly when i read your posts saru and just the series i mean it's so beautiful how you combine words and pictures You know, uh, that is something I feel is a real skill. You know, you tell a story about a photo, but you are often the person in that photo creating that scene, you know. So maybe you could talk to us about Pechan or Chitti Aiha and Shamsaha. And I'm just really excited about this part. Uh,
1: Yeah, I think I'm really excited about this part as well. But I'd like to... uh, briefly talk about the transition first as to why I moved. um, Because it it, just, you know, give some context. Um, So when I moved back here, uh, I was working as a journalist, uh, and I won't name the publication. But, uh, and I I didn't exactly enjoy it, because I think uh, it's a very different uh, environment. Um, it's it's uh, it's obviously media is more censored and we use media for different things here so uh, I realized it was more PR led and oftentimes you know that whole uh, like that whole like uh, passion for human stories and telling a person's story uh, there wasn't much room for that and I'm not saying there isn't any room and nobody is a journalist of course that are very well-established journalists here, some of whom I really look up to. But uh, I felt like when they started out, things were different and uh, it would would have been very difficult for me to carry on and continuously feel a little bit let down because then I would lose my passion and I would be writing a lot of PR pieces. So that made me decide that, you know, I'm going to make the switch. And from here on, I'm going to write myself. And uh, by this time, I had uh, uh, networks, and this is something beautiful that that happens when you transition, you make uh, different networks of uh, friends and professional connections. So I knew that if I really wanted a piece to be out there, or if it was worth it, I would find the medium for it, Mm. or someone would approach me for the right piece. Uh, and that's how I moved into uh, brand strategy and brand management. Uh, and while it sounds like a completely like, different sort of career path, it shares the same uh, skill sets. It involves a lot of storytelling uh, and it, it involves uh, the personification of brands. And it's a very interesting field. Um, of course, it was new to me as well. I, I learned things from scratch, but I used the same skill sets. And uh, um, the only thing was that my stories didn't have my names under them anymore. And that was done on, on the side, uh, on a freelance basis. Uh, so during this brand uh, management and brand strategist uh, period of my life, I one of my... I think it's it's my favorite, personal favorite projects that I worked on was uh, Shamsaha. Uh, they were formerly known as the Women's Crisis Care International, which is the Middle East's first women's crisis helpline. Uh, and it's a 24 hour service. So anyone who's suffering from domestic abuse, mental abuse, any sort of abuse, um, and just not just abuse, just anxiety and depression in general can call up the uh, helpline and speak to the people and they someone will always be available to talk to you about it. So when they came to us, their name was Women's Crisis Care International and the issue they were facing was they wanted to make it more region specific. They wanted it to reflect the Middle East more. Right. Uh, while keeping in mind that it is, um, you know, something that's dedicated to women. Uh, so we worked on an extensive process of uh, rebranding, which is a very beautiful exercise, wherein you sit in uh, about two workshops, uh, which is a minimum, and you discover where the brand is at. Mm -hmm. So you talk about um, what are their current objectives? And where do they think they are? What do they like about the current brand? What do they not like about it? So these are a few things that you look into. And then based on what where they want to be, you then create a strategy, you create a personality for them, you know, Mm -hmm. and this includes things like things as silly as, uh, you know, if they were an animal, they would be this and if they were, so if they were, they were a person, their favorite color would be this. So you really like personify that brand, like Mm -hmm. you make it into a living and breathing human, which then determines what it looks and feels like. Wow, so it's a very, yeah, it's a very fascinating, if I may say so myself, it's a very fascinating uh, experience. Um, so when, when we came out of it, on the other side, there's also a naming workshop, which happens separately, once the person has been created, you then decide what you would name them. Mm. And uh, we knew that it had to be a local name. Mm -hmm. It had to be something positive without uh, too many, you know, like Arabic is a very beautiful, but a very difficult language. So it shouldn't have uh, any of the, uh, you know, alphabets or like uh, syllables that need the epiglottis. So Mm -hmm. it must be something that everyone can pronounce and it would be correct. Uh, So we came up with Shamsaha, which means her son, as in the sun, the sun and the moon, and which was... uh, you know all about like positivity and her strength. The sun is often like associated with strength, new beginnings, and hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we sort of went with it, and uh, the, the platform is doing very well. In fact, they had uh a much better engagement with it because it wasn't a foreign entity anymore. It was something people understood. It fit within the local dynamics, um, and it was it was pink mainly. It was a very bright poppy pink, uh, which uh, which was bold. You know, not not the usual pastels that we associate femininity with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a very beautiful project that we worked on, and it was uh, incredible. We then went on to work on a campaign for them called It's Not Okay, okay. Um, which was about um, physical abuse and domestic violence. Uh, so we, we went through a series of facts around the world, uh, and just in general about women and how they're discriminated. So we learned uh, many different things, for instance, um, cars, you know, their safety um, uh, setups are designed for men, because mm. when they use a dummy, they only keep a man's body in mind. Oh. So women are more prone to accidents and deaths due to accidents. So we found out all these facts and, and, you know, the campaign was all about women putting their hand out and it said, it's not okay to trying to put a stop to the whole thing. And was a very well-recognized campaign. People all over Bahrain uh, took it up, uh, people participated in it. And there were a lot of, it was, a, there was a lot of user engagement. So I think, um it was something very beautiful uh, that i was a part of i still look back on it fondly because it had a cause it had a why and that's uh, i think that's something i am very drawn towards so yeah that's Jamsaha.
0: that's that's beautiful you know and i i think one of the parts that i really enjoy about these uh, conversations is is there comes a particular point in your life when there's a real alignment between um, something you can give the world and your background and skill set. And it's, it's beautiful to, for, for you. I mean, I think this particular project and the, the, the article you wrote about uh, raising awareness about diabetes. I mean, there were, there was a point when there was a, a complete alignment between, you know, your deepest, uh, you know, Uh, larger focus professionally and personally and how you can really add value to the world right and I don't think it's very easy to get to that point uh, early on in your career I mean you were able to look at different opportunities but I think it's kudos to your ability to um, you know understand that your core uh, sort of larger vision is to tell powerful stories but you were able to do it in different mediums and 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 try it out in different mediums, and have spaces to explore it in different ways, you know, and I want to be respectful of time, Aru, and I know we're just about a couple of minutes over, so can we just go on for about five to ten minutes more, Aru, would that be okay?
1: Perfect, Perfect. yeah, that's fine.
0: Yeah, Because I know it's a weekday, and I don't want to take too much of your time. Don't
1: worry about it, (laughs) don't worry about it, yeah.
0: Perfect, so, you know, like, and this is when I want to talk about uh, your, um, the Instagram account, and also your blog, uh, Aru, you know, and I, you know I was looking through, I literally looked through all of these stories. and before Shitti ai there was Mirabai and uh, there was also uh, conversations with you in terms of the books you were reading and and all the beautiful, beautiful saris. I uh, you know they're, they're all so <laughs> wonderful. I feel like you can start a fashion blog of your own. I think it's just so much of you and at least whatever I've known of you over time. but maybe you know, tell us how you conceptualize. This idea in in your because there are so many elements. There is the setting, you know, creating those visuals. It's not easy because I think there's so much thought into that. But then the story, and then making sure it goes off in a series. But then also, I wrote like a little post uh, for mm-hmm. Pechan related to my mother's identity, you know, as an immigrant in Bahrain. So, like, how do you conceptualize the stories, and maybe? tell us about one or two of these stories that you really enjoyed working on, uh, on your Instagram account.
1: Uh, So I think Instagram wasn't something I did with an intention, you know, to push myself out there or anything. It just happened. One day I uh, started to uh, create these characters and it was to do with saris. And after I'd come back, I, Uh, I had the time and the leisure to like the access to my mom's sarees. So and I and I started draping them and one day I was looking at my photos and uh, I, I felt like that in that particular image. I looked like someone else or I felt like someone else. And so I wrote about that uh, particular person. And then I said, I'll probably put this up and I'll see what happens. So when I put that character out there and I called her Nandini because she looked very, um, someone who was very like caught in her culture. and uh, But she also had dreams which were like hidden and all of that. So when I did that, it had a good response and I continued it with two, three other characters. And gradually I sort of felt like, this could be a thing. I could tell a story and I could merge my uh, interests. Something that I I think has really helped me is merging, uh, really realizing where my skills and my strengths are. You must always do that. Uh, even even if you're not making a SWOT uh, analysis diagram, you must always be aware uh, of your uh, strengths mm-hmm. and your weaknesses. So I knew that I loved saris, I knew that I loved writing, and I and I knew that uh, I wanted to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And that sort of led to this uh, whole Instagram, uh, you know, I discovered Instagram and gradually I, I saw with with the recommendation of a few friends, I turned it into a public account and I opened it out to the public. So initially I was for the first year or so, I was just creating content on my own. And I was everything, I was the photographer, I was the writer and I was, uh, you know, I was also the, the person setting up the whole place, the stylist and everything involved. But as uh, I just put myself out there, and I sort of, in fact, um, I think in my second year or into Instagramming and blogging, uh, and I at this point I was also talking about South Asian, uh, like especially brown girl problems, problems that all brown brown girls like face. Uh, so I think in my second year, sometime in the beginning, I. I to tell better stories, I wanted better visual aid. So, uh, and I just put it out there, I didn't really, like, uh, you know, speak to anyone or uh, try to get someone to to collaborate with me. Mm whilst I was out there, people started to, you know, message me and they asked me if I would collaborate with them. And if I could give them the ideas, they would help me bring them to life on a, a, you know, through, through photographs or videos. And that's potentially how uh, Mira was born. And I was always very scared. I have to say that I didn't, I didn't take up Many of the offers by many great photographers. Like they they actually asked me to collaborate with them and I was always too scared. And I I was just in my shell. Uh, and I said, no, I'm not very, I'm not very comfortable. I don't know how I look. It's okay with I'm okay with phone photography, but I don't know what I look like under like professional lens. And uh, I just put down a lot of those opportunities. But one fine day, um, my friend Ruby, she came up to me and, and she she asked me if I would do Mira with her. Mira was actually her concept. She told me you'd fit this perfectly. And we did Mira. It hit it hit off really well with the audience. Mm-hmm. And that's where I sort of, you know, I really have to thank her because that's where I developed that mojo. And I was like, okay, I can work with other people, I can collaborate. Um to, to talk of projects, my favorite one so far has to be and and, uh, and you know, I, I love that you've contributed as well. You connected to it, even though you, you're, you're not a homemaker, you know, and, and you know, you're not, you're not a woman. You don't fit that character, but you connected to it because you immediately drew that parallel to your mom. And uh, that's, that's uh, sort of why I did that, because I know that a lot of our uh, mothers... Came here without much of an identity for themselves, and they probably didn't even get that many opportunities, even now, to discover themselves or really like conventionally set aside a pechan for them. You know, they sort of uh like we became parasites of their identities, and yeah. they were absolutely yeah. happy with that. And whilst I'm in no way promoting that, uh, you know, this generation in this generation and age, but I but we do have to acknowledge that there are these sets of moms who've done this for us and that was my dedication to to, you know like to those uprooted mothers who left everything that they knew and came to these foreign lands and tried to build a life for us and of course our fathers had a huge role to play but our moms were the ones who stayed back and were dealing with so many emotions which you know no one probably ever understood or applauded them for. Um, The beauty of that series though was that uh, whilst it was about uprooted mothers, of course immigrant mothers related to it, immigrants related to it, like for instance yourself. Uh, what I really loved was a lot of people in different stages of their life doing different things uh, related to it. Mm. Uh, so in the sense like there were there were girls who were like working who'd moved a different city within the same country, Um, There were people who had uh, rediscovered certain skills uh, after a certain point in their life. It wasn't even immigration. It was just rediscovering themselves. People who left abusive marriages and restarted a a whole new journey for themselves. Um, And that just made it very special because, uh, like you said, the whole aspect of an identity is so, so, so unique because... uh, uh, you you. firstly it's not just one person carving an identity there are like so many factors you know that lead to the creation of one yeah. uh, and 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 it's it's funny that that you know all, although only some conventional identities get celebrated for instance if you're a movie star or if you work at a branded firm or you know like or if you're rich or whatever you know certain labels or those kind of identities get celebrated but actually everyone's journey is extraordinary in their own ways true and everyone's struggles are extraordinary in their own ways so uh that is where the idea truly came from. And I'm, I'm really happy to see how it's uh, taking form. Uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely one of my favorite uh, Instagram projects.
0: And, and thank you. Thank you for your work on that. Arina. I'm so excited about the projects you're going to come up with in the future too, because I feel it uh, gives people a space to talk about things that are really important to all of us. And uh, this is probably something I would not just like a, you know, funny story, I mean, like a important, not so funny story, but I shared that little note with my mother. And it was the first time I was able to have uh, that sort of conversation with her, you know, because we weren't as open about some of those things. And she wouldn't talk openly about it. And it was just beautiful that uh, even though we've never like, you know, had that conversation through social media, you know, you were able to help me spark a conversation that was really important to me. And, you know, and sometimes we forget that we need to tell the people we love that so we love them and we, their journey is so important to us. So, you know, thank you for that, Aru. And, you know, I I think that's like a great, like a really positive note to like uh, probably end this, but as an ending note, Ari, you know, I know you read a lot. You probably watch a lot of movies um, and you're also working on a lot of interesting brand campaigns, oops. Um Yeah, sometimes. Okay, there's a slight disturbance here. We're just going to wait for a couple of seconds. Hey
1: Aru. Hey, I'm really sorry. I'm not sure what happened there. That's okay.
0: That's that's <laughs> completely fine. It probably could be my internet too. It's been a little sketchy. But what I what I was uh, thinking about Arun is that I know you read a lot. You probably watch a lot of uh, movies that you enjoy, and you're also working in the brand industry. So maybe you know, could you tell us like one recommendation for a book that you really enjoyed, a film that you really enjoyed and why? And maybe a brand campaign that you felt really brought out a human story according to you. And it could be from any context, not even India, so even the books and the movies. Um, and this is personally like my sort of thing because I'm, I'm really intrigued by the things you read and watch, so I'd love to know your answers to this.
1: Um. So books, uh, I'm going to be very, you know, at the expense of sounding repetitive, I think everybody must read A Suitable Boy. And while it sounds like a book that's about specific things, especially if you're Indian and you're interested in, uh, you know, India in in the 1950s, so post-partition India, which was a very magical time, I feel. a Suitable Boy is a beautiful book because not only is it about Lata, the protagonist, uh, finding herself a suitable boy, but it's also about India rediscovering itself and you know like uh, turning a new leaf uh, post uh, like independence. Uh, so Vikram says, A Suitable Boy is a beautiful, beautiful book to read. The series not so much. I personally didn't like them as much. Uh, when it comes to a movie, I think um, many of you must have watched it, but uh, the namesake had a very strong impact uh, on me. Um, and anything with uh, Irfan Khan actually is, is a beautiful watch. Uh, so things like the lunchbox or the namesake. Namesake also makes for a great read. So I would highly recommend that you read it first and then watch the, watch the movie. Uh, when it comes to um, a brand campaign, I don't know about uh, a human story. I'm going to I'm going to be uh, you know I'm going to talk about a very smart campaign, uh, which probably cost the brand a, a lot of money, but it was a very very smart campaign. If you uh, think about uh, Pan Bahar, which is I'm it's very funny that I'm mentioning this you know but it, I thought it was brilliant uh, they actually got uh, their agency actually managed to get uh, James Bond uh, to do the ad Oh, which uh, was which it the actor from,
0: in James Bond like Daniel Creed? the
1: actor oh. yeah the, the original James Bond okay. so um, he's the one who's doing an ad for Pan Bahar believe it or <laughs> not which is uh, which is like honestly it was when you first watched it you'd be like what what is this? You know, which is exactly what they were trying to achieve uh, from from a marketing and a advertising perspective. It was the shock value of the ad which truly changed, uh, you know, the whole uh, thing, and it elevated the perception of the brand from like a pedestrian product. It turned into, you know, a very high class uh, commodity yeah. because James Bond was advertising it. At the end of the day, you must watch the ad. It's hilarious. Um, you've kind of put me on the spot for this one but that's the first one that came to my uh, mind and it's one of my favorite ads simply because of the brilliant placement that they've done uh, people hated it then there were people who loved it but everybody was talking about it and from a strategist's perspective i think it was a brilliant uh, campaign so so yeah
0: Wow, those that's awesome. I'm gonna actually go look up this particular yeah, video right now. But but Ari, you know, thank you so much for being so honest and thank you for all your work. You know, I and that's something that um that I think has given me a lot of comfort, uh, personally, but I know you do this for a, a lot more people in your in your little way, right? And in, and I, I really hope, you know, you you write more because the world needs more of your writing and your stories, because I think it's so important for, um, and I think you're uniquely positioned with your background and experience to tell stories that um, are really important to say. And I think without your series, chan I don't think I would have talked about um, a part that's very important to me. So I hope you know, you're able to give this platform to a lot more people, but not just with your work uh, at a personal level, even professionally, There are so many wonderful projects you're working on. I'm actually curious about your thoughts on like other brand campaigns. And even as a film uh, or a book reviewer, I think you do an amazing job. So there are so many things, so many different ways you add value to my life. And um, thank you again for your time, Aru. And uh, we're gonna come uh, to the end of this episode of Learning Stories. Stay tuned for more such uh, wonderful stories and, Hopefully we have another profile in a week or two, but uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you did too. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Abhishek. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Awesome.